Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami Having just completed our three-month retreat in winter, which is a wonderful time for seclusion and silence and solitude, and focusing on the inward journey During this winter, there were some very major events that happened in the world, specifically the earthquakes in New Zealand, Japan, continuing earthquakes in Japan. And it reminds me of a story I read that happened when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. In the midst of the destruction, At the medical faculty of a university, there was a doctor who survived, and around him all his colleagues lay dead. Of course, there was terrible devastation everywhere. And someone came rushing in with a badly injured person and begged this doctor to minister to him. He looked at this person and saw that It was dire. There wasn't much he could do. So he said, it's hopeless. Millions are dead. There's nothing to do. He had given up. But then something in his heart moved. And he said, okay, bring him to me. He started to try to dress this man's wounds. From then on, he worked tirelessly with the few resources that were available in this time of terrible tragedy and death and suffering and misery for so many beings. He moved and walked and acted and initiated among the colleagues that were surviving a team of triage to try to rescue whoever could be rescued and help organize the disposal of those who had perished in a dignified and compassionate way. And a few years later, he himself died of radiation poisoning. It was a a great act of heroism in the face of an impossible situation that one would instinctively react to with despair What's the use? What's the hope? This is a teaching for us. Last week, I gave a meditation class at hospice. One of the students is from Japan. She had flown her mother over. Her mother was there during the tsunami. And she brought her over. Her mother was there in the class. Afterwards, they came up and spoke to me 
and naturally I wanted to know from her mother, how was it for you? How do you feel? Are you all right? And your family members, everyone fine. They were living in Tokyo. But this young woman said to me, I can accept the tsunami. I can accept the earthquake. But I'm struggling to accept what's happening with the reactor, with the nuclear reactor. I cannot accept it. I don't understand it. Our people are very accepting of nature. We are very tolerant and compassionate to each other and respectful of nature. But we are confused and disoriented and cannot accept what is happening with this nuclear reactor. I thought that was a profound description of perhaps what most of the world might be experiencing. Aside from feelings of fear or hopelessness or just wonder, well, what is happening? There isn't an answer to this suffering when we look from the point of view of externals, from what is happening on the outside, unless we have had the ability to fathom and go to the depths of our own hearts and understand the nuclear reactor within us, the contamination within our own minds and hearts. There is a nuclear accident going on in each of us who has not been liberated from despair and delusion, from fear and hatred, from greed and conflict within our own hearts. The meditation practice is a way for us to explore and investigate and try to understand how to solve, how to rescue ourselves from a nuclear accident that is happening here and now within us. How do we prevent it? And if it is happening, how do we resolve it? How do we maintain or sustain a state of mind that is free of violence, aggression, selfishness? How do we do that? How do we live a harmless life? How do we live in peace? It's easy to see how the rest of the world fails to do that and to look for someone to blame. Who's responsible here? Who caused this nuclear disaster that is happening in our midst? And the potential for much more, because there are these places all over the planet. There's one just down the river from us. From the point of view of Dhamma, the only way that I know to find some kind of reconciliation to these conditions is to look within and to see how to resolve and bring peace to the conflicting forces within my own heart and mind. And if each one of us were able to do that, then the relentless greed that propels every society on this planet would not 
require us to have these kinds of power stations that are so dangerous and destructive. Just something for you to contemplate. But then I would like to also offer four things that I find help us in our contemplative practice, in our meditation practice, to channel our understanding, our energy of investigation more deeply into our inner world where we will find some kind of light. It is possible to shed light on this question, on these problems. The first one of those is the earnestness, the willingness, the wish, the eagerness to find such an answer. Because most of us are not drawn to look within. We are more interested in putting the responsibility on someone else. It's their problem, and we get on with our lives. We do care, but we don't care enough to change our own lives to contribute to the solution, really. People certainly have risen to great heights with offering donations and volunteering their time and initiating projects to reach out and help people who have been affected by these disasters. But in terms of our own living standard, in terms of renouncing things in our lives, we're not really making big changes. And if we are, that's wonderful. So how can we change ourselves from within if on the outside we're not willing to give up things? Simple things like driving the car anytime you feel like it or making long-distance airplane trips and putting a strain on the resources of the planet. If everyone collectively understood the connection. But let's go back to the, the root of the greed, the root of the aggression, the root of the delusion. It's here within us. And if we look for it within, with that kind of eagerness, being eager to meditate, eager to practice the ways of virtue, of loving kindness in our families, with ourselves, with each other, this is one way that we can bring reconciliation into our own minds, let alone into the world. And so when we're sitting down to meditate and we feel a restlessness, an anxiety, a doubt, a lack of certainty about how to do it, why we should do it, it's not pleasant enough, we're not getting the results we want, and then we start looking for another kind of practice that will be more fruitful or more blissful or more, more interesting. But to have the eagerness to keep exploring. Suppose somebody told you that right in front of your door, underneath the earth, if you were to dig two feet, you would find a box full of treasures. Would you dig? Sure, you would dig. And if it wasn't under two feet, you'd keep digging. 
And if you went to full feet, you'd still keep digging because you believed what this person told you. Eventually, of course, you would give up because you'd say, they're pulling my leg. The Buddha presented us with a map, a map of consciousness, a map that takes us to a treasure. And if we keep digging and we follow his instructions and we give ourselves to that project with all our hearts, we will certainly, surely come to that treasure. We must have faith. If we're willing to dig in front of our house for a box of just ornaments or coins or gold or something that that cannot bring us any real happiness, we think it can, but it cannot stop us from getting old, getting sick, or dying. It cannot bring us peace. It cannot resolve our family quarrels. It cannot make us feel good about ourselves. It cannot smile in the face of heartache and grief. It is just a metal, just an ornament of no value, except in terms of worldly things, things that have not the value in the way that we are looking for value. So let us look earnestly within, and we will find those treasures. The degree to which we apply ourselves to that project, we will succeed, guaranteed. The second thing is what kind of effort, and only each of us can know what kind of effort. If you're driving on a highway, you know that if you drive too fast, you'll get a ticket, maybe. And if you drive too slowly, people will honk and criticize you or call you names as they pass by at a high speed. And they might drive you off the road. In Quebec, I think there is a minimum speed on the highway. Yes. So it's actually dangerous to drive too slow. The way that we apply effort, we know that it's important to be balanced. And the same with the meditation practice. If you're looking for that treasure and you don't find it right away and you get impatient or you start to doubt that it's really a treasure at all, you start to convince yourself that you've chosen the wrong path and you just better go back to where you were looking for treasures before. This is not a fruitful path. This practice doesn't give me what I want. Or you begin to do it in a sloppy way, not taking care, not being meticulous. Effort must be balanced. Neither too much, neither too slack. If it's too slack, we get lazy. If we overdo it and we're ambitious because we want to squeeze every result we can out of the practice, we just get discouraged and we give up. But to have a measured way of approaching the practice and continuing to give our whole hearts to it, even if we get nothing, but because we value truth and we value virtue, we value true knowledge and we value the peace that it has the potential to give us. The things that the world cannot provide, 
that we know reside within our hearts. Effort, sustained, sustainability. It's just like sustainability in the world. We cannot sustain this world on greed, hatred, and delusion, nor can we sustain our practice without balance, without measure, without wisdom, without compassion for ourselves and others, without understanding and clarity. What's the third thing that we need to be able to realize the fruits of this path? We have to be able to concentrate that energy. Just like a river, when a river moves more rapidly, it can even power an electric plant. It can generate electricity. Look at the hog's back right now. The river is just boiling from all the melting snow. What an incredible power there is there. It has the force to wear down rock. If you compare the element of earth to the element of water, one might think that the earth is much more powerful than water. But water, when it's consistent, concentrated, and keeps moving, and has that force behind it, it can wear down stone. So if we are concentrating our attention on one thing, one-pointedly, continuing, without wavering, we don't get distracted. So if you meditate for five minutes every day, you'll get five minutes of results. And if you meditate for 20 minutes or an hour, you'll get more results. You'll wear away the defilements in the mind. You'll purify the contaminants. But if we learn to practice mindfulness and awareness in every activity, all day long, whatever we do, whether we're speaking, walking, cooking, brushing our teeth, driving in the car, or sitting on the cushion. If the practice becomes our life, that's why in monastic life, we can develop so much focus because our commitment, we have the potential. We still have to do the work. You can still live a sloppy, distracted monastic life, but we have the conditions to really make a full-time, 24-7 commitment. So when we go on retreat in the winter and restrain the mind in seclusion, take away all the distractions, then we can really go deeply into the heart because there's a power of concentration. It's a single-minded focus. We're no longer trusting that the treasures lie anywhere else but here. And we focus our energy in that way. So the energy may be balanced, and it may be sustained, but it easily gets contaminated and distracted into the many kinds of things that the world offers. It's harder to stay one-pointed and to keep wearing away our old habits of letting the mind fall into greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what we have to do. We have to give up our old habits. When we were children and we had no training, if we did something and we knew that our mom and dad would yell at us, then if they asked us, did you do that? No, I didn't do it. But that's a lie. But you don't want to get spanked. We learn 
unwholesome ways of covering ourselves from preventing getting punished. But if we continue to do that as an adult, this is really an unwholesome habit. And then we learn how to do that in so many ways just to look good, to look good in front of others. Even in subtle ways like that, that's lying. We're lying to ourselves. We're in denial. But if we keep focusing ourselves in the way of truth, then we get to the bottom of where our conflicts and struggles begin. And then we stop lying to ourselves. When we stop lying to ourselves, we stop lying to each other. And our whole life becomes a symphony of truth. And we are upholding virtue, wisdom, and truth at every moment. That's right effort. And that's moving towards the real joy and peace that we're all looking for. And then the fourth thing is being aware of the conditions that lead us inward and understanding the insights that arise. Because as the mind becomes concentrated, it becomes very quiet, as you know from the practice. Inside that quiet, this morning we walked out to the pond, and it was so completely still, like a mirror. And the sun was shining on it, and one could see into the water. So it is with the heart. When the heart is pure, when the mind is pure, when consciousness is unsullied by the distractions of the world, by our internal desires and turmoil, by fear, by greed, by confusion, then insight arises. And if we're investigating and giving ourselves to that investigation, this is where enlightenment can arise inside the still mind, the cool mind, the peaceful mind, then the treasure becomes visible. We see it. We don't have to go anywhere or do anything. It's right there for us, just waiting to be revealed. This is the map that the Buddha gave us, and it is available to each one of us. It's not out there. You can travel to the ends of the earth, but we won't find it. But if we just investigate into the depths of our own hearts by looking in the clear mirror within us, that's where the light is. That is the source of our deepest joy. That doesn't answer for us the question about why so many people die in a tsunami? And we're here living and breathing and walking in comfort. But if we investigate in these four ways and develop the equanimity of mind to understand ourselves, we will begin to deeply understand the law of karma. The Buddha did tell us, don't try to understand the karma of other beings but just understand the truth of the law of kama that we, through our actions, bring with us from lifetimes, produce here and now through the freedom we have 
to choose goodness and perpetuate through our carelessness or our heedfulness, our mindfulness. That's how this law brings result. We do not know yet what the fruits of our actions contain for us, but we do have an ability to change karma if we can understand this path for ourselves, not for others, just by purifying our mind, purifying our speech and action. Little by little, it doesn't happen in a day, in a month, in a year. Just like that doctor in Japan. He could only begin by healing one person. There were millions. At first he thought it's hopeless. But then compassion arose in his heart. And he thought, no, I will help this man. And then I will help this one. And this one. And this one. And there it went. We have to start here, within us, at the beginning, and then turn to each other and work together to create this path for all of us. It's a blessing. The treasure is to be shared. It's not to be kept. It doesn't belong to anyone. This is what universal, unconditional love and compassion is. It's a universal gift. Having tasted the medicine that was given by the Buddha, who was the greatest doctor of all time, we can then heal ourselves and bring much understanding to this world.